Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good afternoon, Celtics fans, and welcome to today's edition of CLNS Radio Celtics Beat. I'm your host, Rich Conti, and since we've hit the August NBA doldrums with the offseason settling down and training camp still about a month away, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks on Celtics Beat bringing you some special content. In this edition, we're going to turn back the clock and take a look back at one of the best teams, if not the best team in franchise history, the 1972-73 squad that won a still franchise record 68 games. To help us with that look back, we have a really special guest today. Former Boston Globe sports writer Bob Ryan will join me in a little bit for a deep dive into that team and that season. Before we get started, I want to let listeners know about a promotional contest we're running at CLNS Radio for Celtics Beat. We're really excited to have Celtics Beat featured on iTunes and Stitcher. In fact, just this week we hit the top 20 in the sports podcast category on iTunes. To encourage folks to subscribe to Celtics Beat on iTunes and Stitcher, we're offering a chance to win two tickets to any Celtics home game of your choosing this upcoming season. How do you enter? Simple. Visit iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe to Celtics Beat and you'll automatically be entered. Want to maximize your chances of winning? Refer your family, friends, or heck, even random acquaintances to do the same. For every referral, you get an additional entry into the raffle. While you're there, please remember to rate and review Celtics Beat to help us continue to build our already terrific audience. That 1973 season is probably best known as the missing banner in Celtics history. The team, coached by Tommy Heinsohn and led by John Havlicek, Dave Cowens, and JoJo White, led the league with that 68-14 record, but lost a tough seven-game Eastern Conference Final to the rival New York Knicks. One of the reasons I'm so excited to be joined by Bob Ryan today is the first-hand perspective he can give us on that season. Sitting here some 40-plus years later, after all of the subsequent twists and turns in franchise history, it's kind of difficult to understand what it was like to be a Celtics fan at that point in the early 1970s. The franchise, of course, experienced a run of success almost unparalleled in major professional sports. From 1956 through 1969, the team won 11 championships in 13 years, including eight in a row. They were a juggernaut architected by coach and general manager Red Auerbach. Red is one of the preeminent legendary figures in NBA history, but at the time, he was a pioneer. In many ways, he cast the blueprint for the modern sports general manager by recognizing the importance of team culture and individual psychology to winning. His ability to identify undervalued players and get the most out of the resources available to the franchise really presaged the economic approach to team building that the Moneyball revolution introduced to professional sports decades later. 
On the court, the team was led by William Felton Russell, to this day the ultimate winner in professional sports history. In the 15 years, starting with Russell's junior season at the University of San Francisco and then ending with his retirement in 1969, he won two NCAA championships, an Olympic gold medal, and then 11 NBA championships. Only a remarkable twice in that time span did Russell ever finish a season without taking home the ultimate prize. In addition to Red and Russ, the franchise was fortunate to feature a litany of legendary names. Cousy, Sharman, Ramsey, Salmon Casey Jones, Havlicek, and Heinsohn. Celtics fans rode the ultimate decade-long high, and it's now almost unfathomable to consider the degree of confidence that fans had in the franchise back then. Red retired as coach after the 1966 season, and the team barely skipped a beat with Russell taking over as player coach. When Russell decided to hang up his high tops after winning the 1969 championship against the Lakers, the franchise fortunes took a big turn. On the court, the only players of note left from that glorious and unprecedented run of success were John Havlicek, Don Nelson, and Satch Sanders. Russell's retirement not only left the team without its anchor in the middle, it also left them without a coach. Franchise mainstay Tommy Heinsohn took over the coaching reins in what was considered a surprising move at the time. And the result was a two-year absence from the playoffs. The franchise that had become synonymous with championships was suddenly an also-ran and in need of a new identity. And thankfully, Red Auerbach was still at the helm and directing his considerable energy and intelligence to restoring the Celtics' identity and rebuilding a championship-caliber team. In the 1969 draft, he selected Kansas point guard JoJo White with the ninth pick overall, and followed up in the 1970 draft by surprising the entire NBA by selecting Florida State's undersized center Dave Cowens with the fourth overall pick. Those two, along with holdover Hondo Havlicek, would form the core of that next great Celtics team. The team returned to the playoffs after a 1971-72 season in which they won 56 games. They reached the conference finals and faced the Knicks in the first of three consecutive conference finals matchups between the teams. The Knicks sent them home in five games as the Celtics had a hard time matching up with the formidable Knicks front line that featured Willis Reed, Dave DeBusher, Bill Bradley, Mike Reardon, and Phil Jackson. Heading into that 1972-73 season, it was clear the team was building towards another championship run, but no one could have anticipated the season they were about to have. Former Boston Globe sports writer and pioneer of the NBA Notes column, Bob Ryan, is here to talk with us about his recollections of that 1973 team. Welcome to the Celtics, Pete, Bob. Thank you. It's a genuine thrill to have you on the show. Your NBA notes columns in the Globe really helped fuel my passion for the NBA in my teen years. And I vividly remember in those pre-SBN days the disappointment I'd feel at the end of the column because that was all the info I could get on the league until the following week. Well, it was a different world, and uh, we we really uh, felt uh, useful. (laughs) That it's hard to be... uh, for a newspaper guy to feel useful in that regard now. So, yeah, it was a great time to, to be doing it, no question. Let's start by actually talking about the way the 1972 season ended. After two straight seasons of missing the playoffs, in the 72 playoffs, the Celtics lost to the Knicks in five games in what would be the first of three consecutive Eastern Conference Finals matchups between the teams. And the Knicks probably don't come first to mind when talking about Celtics rivals in the 80s. The Celtics, of course, had a fierce Eastern Conference rival in the Philadelphia 76ers. And then there's the long-running rivalry with the Lakers. 
What was that Celtics-Knicks rivalry like in the early 70s, and how does it compare with some of those other notable rivalries in franchise history? The Celtics-Knicks rivalry of the early 80s, uh, 70s was unlike any of the other great rivalries that they're known for, such as the Celtics-Lakers or the Celtics-76ers of, of the 60s and 80s, because their, <clears throat> the building would be in Boston um, about one-fourth and one-third uh, Knicks fans, and that would be because of the uh, college students in greater Boston who were Knicks fans who would get tickets at a time when the Celtics weren't routinely selling out. Um, this would not be the case in the 80s and the Bernard King era, say, but it was the case in the early 70s. So um, they had uh, created an atmosphere that was much more like a local crosstown high school or college rivalry than a professional rivalry. And that was one dynamic that made it different. Uh, Nick would, Nick's would score and, and the crowd would erupt, and, and a significant portion of that crowd would erupt. So there was a lot of um, back-and-forth stuff going on personally and, and with people, and, and it, was, it was different. Uh, I've been called very distinctly the buzz, the feel of walking in there, particularly on the Sunday afternoon games, was um, palpable. It was really special. It, it's, in fact, it's probably as fun rivalry as all, any of the ones I've known and the whole time I covered the Celtics, uh, it was really special. And and then they get down to the individual <clears throat> matchups, which were off the charts great. Uh, once <clears throat> Paul Silas completed the Celtic uh, roster, but you had the backcourt, and you had uh, Frazier and White, and you had Cheney against either. Um, <clears throat> we had he would, he would guard Frazier, and uh, White would guard either. First it was Dick Barnett, and then it was Earl Monroe, and then you had uh, Havlicek and. Um, Mike Reardon, which was a, uh, two energetic, <laughs> to say the least, guys. <laughs> Though Havlicek was a superstar, Reardon held his own. And um, then you had DeBusher against, uh, well, before Silas, it was, that's the problem. They didn't have anybody to guard DeBusher. And then, of course, you had a great one at center with Cowens and Reed, which was a tremendous matchup. And so the, the individual circumstances were great. Celtics could not handle DeBusher. He was the big problem. And uh, <clears throat> when they traded... Uh, for Paul Silas, that changed everything. And so now we get to 72, 73, Silas's first year, and that gave them a parity that uh, they needed in, in that regard. So um, in terms of the Celtics and Knicks, uh, the, the stage was set in 72, 73. Uh, the Knicks had beaten them in, in 72 and 5 and uh, really handled them and schooled them. But the Celtics thought, obviously, after winning 68 games in 1973, that they would have a better chance to win. Yeah, it's interesting that you reference Silas, because my next question actually is going to kind of focus on him and whether that trade to bring him in, of course, for the rights to Charlie Scott, was a direct result of what happened in that 72 uh, conference finals. How was that trade received at the time by the fans and the media, and what did Silas really bring to that team? I've always considered him one of the more kind of forgotten figures in franchise history. Uh, the trade was hatched before the finals. The trade was hatched in February as soon as Scott defected to the NBA and to Phoenix uh, from the Virginia Squires. And um, Celtics, of course, had his rights, so there was no way that that was going, status quo would prevail without the Celtics obtaining something back from Phoenix since they had his NBA rights having drafted him in the uh, 1970 draft along with uh, Mike Malloy of Davidson and Bobby Croft of Tennessee who also went to the NBA, to the ABA. There was a game in a Sunday afternoon when I saw Jerry Colangelo, of the uh, <clears throat> general manager of the Suns, in Boston sitting with Red Auerbach. <laughs> and I said, uh, I'm not a math major, but this is a two-and-two two I can add. 
And this is all about where it's going to get Silas, one way or the other. And um, um, that's exactly what happened. So that predated the finals of the um, playoffs when the Celtics lost. They already knew the reality. that uh, was, I mentioned, didn't mention Satch Sanders. Satch was on his last legs. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a power forward to match up with the Busher. They had everything else they thought they needed. And uh, so um, that trade was consummated. That deal was made. And uh, so they started off the 72-73 season, far more equal footing than they had started off the year before. You asked about Silas. You can't exaggerate how important Silas was at the time. He was uh, at the peak of his career. He had uh, a guy who had changed his whole body over a a year or two earlier in Phoenix after being a banger, a big bulky guy in in St. Louis and originally in Phoenix. Uh, He wanted to be great, not good. And he went on a Weight Watchers diet, and he lost 35 pounds, and he now he could get up and down the floor, and he still was mean and nasty. Uh, and um, he now he could participate in the running game. And matching up with Silas, with Pat Cowens, gave them the, the best one-two rebounding punch in the league, period. Nobody, uh, and that included Hayes and Unsold in, in Baltimore and Washington. And... Um, uh, but they were right there and uh, with them. So uh, <clears throat> he, he was uh, what they needed defensively. He was an all-league defensive kind of player. Uh, he, was a, a, the, he was the reigning off at best offensive rebounder in basketball uh, by acclamation. Uh, now he can run the floor, and uh, it turned out to be an uh, incredible pickup. Uh, he played four years in Boston. They won two championships. They went to the conference finals twice. They won a, had a 68-win season and a 62-win 60-win season, and uh, he was the extra ingredient that that team needed. Was that the perception going into that 72-73 season, that with the addition of Silas, they kind of had now all the pieces in place to maybe have one of the better regular seasons in franchise history? Yeah, that was the perception, but it turned out to be, obviously, you don't, you don't ever project 68 wins. And one of the things that we did not know, although we had heard rumors, but just like on any other circumstance of this nature, there are certain things that you can hear all you hear, or you can be told all you uh, countless times to something about something, but until you experience it, you can't appreciate it. Um, his locker room presence, his general presence, uh, was was um, very very powerful. Um, he uh, he became the conscience of the team, and uh, they had they had Havlicek as the all time leader. I mean, they had Cowens, but this was a different personality, and it it, it meshed uh, completely with. Uh, with the others, and he he uh, became absolutely the conscience of the team. So uh, that was an ingredient that you can't manufacture. Yeah, that uh, is interesting. You know, one of to me the most interesting aspect of the Celtics' most recent championship team in 2008 was how the skills and temperament of the big three Garnett, Pierce, and Allen all complemented each other so well. Was there a similar dynamic with the core of that '73 team, particularly Havlicek, Collins, and JoJo, and now and now Silas? And when you mention it in the context of the the um, Garnett Pierce Allen trio, uh, we never looked at it that way. Um, we took everybody for granted in their own individual niches, and, mm-hmm. and nobody had really uh, formulated or articulated it in that fashion. They were never referred to as a big two, three, or one. It was just a team. Um, Cowens wasn't then in his uh, entering his uh, fourth year. <clears throat> one, two, three. Yeah, his fourth year. And, and he wound up being the MVP. He had a phenomenal year. Uh, Havlicek was aging, but still was John good enough to be a first-team all-league kind of player. And, and White was on the way in, in his ascendancy to becoming an all, uh, a perennial all-star guard. Cheney was as good a defensive guard as there was in the league. Um, and uh, Don Nelson was still there to come off the bench and, or even score, start whichever you needed to uh, score and rebound. Um, and he had a you know, his interesting personality, and of course he went on to become the all-time winningest coach, which I would not have, uh, <laughs> which I would definitely, well, no, I would definitely have believed 
the only reason I would hesitate to say I wouldn't have believed it is that his stated goal when he was a player was to become a referee after he did, <laughs> not, not to become a coach. And he actually tried to do that. So um, people don't remember that, but it's all true. Um, no, there was no – so we didn't make that comparison. And if you want to look back, you could say, yeah, that's exactly right. Personalities did mesh, but it wasn't an issue at the time. What was the perspective of Coach Heinsohn going into that season? You know, he was entering his fourth season as head coach after missing the playoffs twice and then losing in the conference finals. After all the success in the 60s under Red, was, was Tommy on the hot seat at all? No. No, he was never on the hot seat. People uh, understood why they didn't beat the Knicks. Um, they won 56 the year before. The Knicks beat them in the playoffs fair and square because uh, they didn't have the, a match for the pusher. It was just that simple, and everybody knew it. Tommy was not being held responsible for that in any way. So, no, um, his perspective was fine. But he was secure. Uh, Red wasn't going to do anything with Tommy. There was no need to. And um, you know, he knew the team was going to be good. We all knew it had to be good. Uh, but but you don't project 68. You don't project the things that happen. You don't, um, and and you just don't. You can't. That's one of the handful of greatest mm-hmm. individuals with regular seasons in the history of the league. And um, and so uh, you just that uh, those things are never predictable. Uh, certainly not in that in that uh, in that league. Uh, you're going up against the the Knicks and and the Bullets in the East. You're going up against the Lakers and the and the um, Bucks and and the Bulls who were in in the, in the Pistons. Who are uh, the Bulls? Were of course one of the great, uh, unfortunate, historically, you know, historic teams because they were, they just couldn't get by the Lakers uh, or the Bucks, but they were a very, very, very good team. Yeah, it's kind of funny to talk about the Bulls and the Pistons being in the, in the West. You know, of course, fans over mm-hmm. you know the last couple of decades are kind of used to them being staples in the Eastern Conference. And you know, the Celtics started that season with ten straight wins, including a win at home against the Lakers and a big road win in Baltimore against the Bullets. At what point did it seem that they might be on their way to the you know one of those truly special seasons? Was was there a specific game that stands out to you? At that juncture, the, the 10 straight wins were eye-opening. And the, the, the loss was, was, when I look back now, I, 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 it was kind of funny. The first loss was at home to the um, uh, Kansas City Omaha mm-hmm. Kings. And uh, Tiny Archibald, who having had, had this great year in which he led the league in, in scoring and assists. And I remember Tommy Heinsohn, um, because he used to go, I mean, in those days I went to practice every day, and I was there at practice all day. And it's not like today when you're not allowed to be in practice. We were there every day. And his, um, his entire goal was to stop Tiny Archibald. And um, uh, he, he uh, thought he had devised a defensive uh, approach to, to, to stop Tiny Archibald. Well, that, Tiny went out and had a typical Tiny game, uh, but the guy who killed him, they left him open because they were double-teaming and they left him open, was Matt Gukas. Mm-hmm. And Matty Gukas, I can still see pumping in the jumpers from the corner. I'm not saying he made five or six, mm-hmm. but at least two or three that, that were crucial. And, um, and so uh, he, he didn't stop Tiny any, in any way, and it just was the way it was meant to be. Some nights is not your night, and that was one of those things. Tiny was – you can't even explain to people what it was like <laughs> now that to have a guy that is, is incredible um, at six feet tall as Tiny Archibald was, and, um, and, and leading the league in scoring and assists. He was an amazing force. And, uh, but the, other than that, um, um, I remember uh, the, the first West Coast trip, uh, which was uh, they went 5-2. and two. Uh, the, loss, the, the first loss was actually um, in one of the great games of the year at Golden State. Uh, I believe it was 115-112. And it included the single greatest play I have ever seen in in, in my career uh, watching the NBA. The single greatest collaborative play. Not into mm-hmm. this involved three people, and I've I've never seen a play uh, like it, and and I doubt that anyone else has either or ever will. But what happened was, 
Nate Thurman was driving the left baseline, and he went up for a shot, but not as powerfully as he should have. And Cowens went up with him, and he, 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 with two hands on the ball, he cupped it. And before he hit the ground, he threw an outlet pass to Havlicek, who then threw an outlet pass, uh, a second pass to JoJo White, who laid it in. And the last time the ball hit the floor was Thurman's last dribble. <laughs> now, you're not going to see a play like that today. No, absolutely and, not. <laughs> uh, and um, I remember Sam Skinner, who was a very noted uh, Bay Area writer and, and broadcaster, and, and, and Gadfly, a, a character uh, who was uh, everybody out in the league knew him. And he came down to me and said, uh, are you looking at this every night? And I said, yes, sir. And that's, uh, yet they lost that game. Uh, Rick Barry's uh, Warriors beat them, and uh, Jeff Mullins and company. And it was a great game, a wonderful game that did the NBA proud. The other game they lost was the last game of the trip when uh, they lost at Milwaukee. And I remember clearly um, a play when it was a one-point game or a two-point game or a tie game, somewhere a very important play in the game. And Cowens was fronting Kareem. And they looped the pass over Dave, and, and he just missed intercepting the pass. And he missed it, and Kareem turned around and dunked, and that was the big shot in the game, a, a very killing shot. And I just remember thinking, you know, the legs just weren't quite there. It was, mm-hmm. the, it was game seven of a, of a trip. And I believe the date was the 22nd or 23rd of December. It was very late, uh, just leading up to Christmas. And um, But the trip uh, highlighted the they won in. Uh, I'm doing stuff top of my head now. They won in L.A. They won. When uh, they won in Seattle, uh, with a, I mean, they just had some great moments in that trip. After that trip, now we're in December, and I, you know, whatever it brought their record to, I'm going to guess it brought their record to, God knows what, 22 and three or whatever. Um, we we knew that this team was special. Now, earlier we talked about the Celtics-Knicks rivalry in the 70s, and in late November of that season, the teams played a back-to-back home-and-home and and split the two games. Do you recall those games specifically with the fans? No, I just not specifically. I just know that they had that in those days. It was not uncommon to be Saturday night in New York, Sunday afternoon in Boston, uh, and that we flew back on the same plane, the late-night flights, and the Knicks would be in first class and the Celtics would be in coach. That I do remember (laughs) distinctly. And uh, because the, Celtics, the Knicks had the most money in the league, the Celtics were a typical NBA team that were not really very, very wealthy, didn't have a lot of money to throw around. And um, the Knicks were the only team that ever chartered in those days and so on and so forth. Um, no, I don't remember the specifics of those games. Um, there's a few games I'm trying to think now on the top of my head that I remember. Um, well, the one, I, the most mem- you know what's one of the most memorable games of the year for me? Without question. When they played the uh, 76ers mm-hmm. uh, and um, – and later in the year, and, and on the Sunday afternoon, and the Sixers were the, on their way to the 9-73 and 73 season, and uh, the Celtics were down by 8 or 10 or 12 going into the fourth quarter. And I remember uh, <clears throat> the grim look on all their faces. Remember those days, we still had a jump ball at every uh, period that had not done away with the jump ball yet. And, um, and uh, I remember the looks on their faces. And they came out, and they played a great fourth quarter, and they won. And I remember Cowan saying, he talked about how um, you, you, you sometimes you kid yourself. You think you're fully hustling, and you're not. You're, you're lying to yourself, and he said we we knew we we, we had not been doing the full hustle. And uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course, in the first three periods, but we 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 did in the fourth quarter. And I remember Silas telling me after the game that he said all I could think about when they were throwing a ball up in that fourth quarter was the headline in the paper the next day: Sixers defeat seventy Sixers <laughs> defeat Celtics. I just couldn't I couldn't stomach that. Um, so that's one of all the games. That's one of the ones I remember. I also remember a game they lost. Well, two games in Baltimore. Uh, and one they won when they were down like five. And I think this is the year. I might be confusing a year, all right, the year before, but I do think it was the same year. I'm not positive. They were down five with a minute to play, and I remember Kaberski hit a jumper that was a big play. They got a three-point play in a basket. They wound up winning in overtime. But they lost the game to Baltimore down the stretch and a fair and square. And I remember writing about, you know, some nights – 
no matter what you do, it's not your night. Mm-hmm. This was Baltimore. Nobody was beating the bullets in in Baltimore that night, and and that was just one of those deals. And I do remember that. Now, throughout that season, the team was relying heavily on Havlicek, Cowens, and White. Uh, Havlicek and Cowens were playing well over 40 minutes a game, and JoJo was just a shade under. Was there any concern at the time that they might be worn down by the time the playoffs rolled around? No, mm-hmm. nobody talked about mm-hmm. that. No. They, were, they considered themselves to be in excellent shape. They were the best running team in the league. They, they ran for a living. That's what they did. They were in shape. You know, they had, they had Handball and Williams coming off the bench. They had mm-hmm. Westfall coming off the bench. They had, they had Kaberski. They had Nelson. They, had, they, they, they thought they had enough players, and they did. That wasn't why. You know, and ultimately, we know you're going to get to it. We're going to get to why they lost, and, and it's going to have nothing to do with, with mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were, uh, the fatigue or, or overuse during the season. And one thing that kind of stands out when you look at kind of the team stats for that season and the seasons preceding and succeeding it is the pace of the game to, seemed to be slowing. Was was the league and style of play going through a bit of a transition those years? You talk about the Celtics kind of, you know, running professionally. Um, was was there a larger trend kind of, you know, to more of a slowdown game? Not yet okay. that I can recall. No, not yet. I mean, maybe subtly. I mean, I'd have to look at the numbers. I know that in the early, uh, a couple of years before, the Rockets were a team that they averaged. They, they were probably the last team to take 100 shots a game. I know they, they had some distinction in there. Uh, but it still was very un, – very un, you, everybody took 90, 95 shots a game, and, and, and you still took 100 on occasion. Uh, it hadn't changed yet. That big, the big change would come later, but it wasn't there then. No, not, not at all. And Havlicek is kind of in many ways the, the forgotten superstar in franchise history, you know, overshadowed by guys like Russell and Bird. He, he's also somewhat of a unique player in NBA history, and there certainly aren't many, if any, players in the post-Bird magic era that kind of played a comparable style. What were your most vivid memories of Havlicek, and, mm-hmm. and what did he bring to the court that made him so unique? John Havlicek from roughly 19... <clears throat> That's good. From the time he became a starter in sixty nine seventy, which was, and he would, and the only reason he didn't start before was still simply strategic. Uh, he, he was playing starter minutes uh, for four years, but it just just so happened that when the game started, he was on, he was not in the lineup, although he would wind up averaging thirty eight, thirty nine, forty minutes a game. Um, he was the best player in the league, and he was he was better than Oscar. He was better than Jerry. He was better than any position, any any player below center in the league. And we can talk about centers, and that you always have to differentiate uh, between all around players and to, who pass, dribble, shoot, and everything. And um, um, the, um, uh, the, the 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 centers, and um, um, so uh, he was the best player in the league. People don't realize that, but he was. He was the only two-position player that never came out of the game. Uh, when you just check the numbers, and then uh, it's played from 1969, 70 till 74-75. Um, they had an unmatched weapon because while well, the other teams were going to their bench in the second quarter, they were still out there. Uh, he never fouled out. Um, he knew how to play with four or five fouls, no problem. Uh, he he uh, was the best two-position player in the history of basketball. There's never been a better uh, guard-forward combination player ever. Uh, and uh, that's not even begin to go with that guy that was in Chicago played alongside of Michael Jordan, who was very good, but he was not John Allen. And he's the next best one, but he's not. He's he's far behind. Um, so let's get that straight. He was the best player. He had the best player, and and they had uh, an, an incredible uh, presence. Uh, you know, the endurance thing was legendary. Uh, and you're right. He is. Starting to fall through the cracks of, of history, not so much the Celtic history as much as the overall history, and this has got to be rectified. This has got to stop. People have to understand uh, what a force John Havlicek was, and uh, the fact is that he he could out Oscar Oscar and out Jerry Jerry, and he could turn around and out, out Barry Rick Barry and out and out anybody else, a small forward you can think of, and there was simply nobody like him uh, then or now. 
And you mentioned kind of making that distinction between other position players and centers. And Dave Collins has always been one of the most compelling figures in Celtics lore. And 73 was his third season in the league. And he, he put up 20 points in over 60, or sorry, fourth season in the league. And he put up, you know, 20 points in over 16 rebounds a game. And what I find most fascinating was how this, you know, six foot nine, 230 pound center could compete and impact the game at such a high level in what many folks would consider the golden age of NBA centers. What was it about this undersized guy that allowed him to compete so effectively with behemoths like Wilt, Kareem, Nate Thurman, and others? Well, five letter word heart. You start with that. You start with determination. You go with the, uh, 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 aggressiveness uh, to the max, uh, hustle. Uh, I remember one day uh, in College Park, um, the Bullets were playing a home game in Maryland, and, and on Sunday afternoon they beat the Bullets in the, in the, in the, in the uh, Hayes Unsold Heyday. And I said to Gene Shue after the game, just theoretically, Gene, what would happen if the if a guy like Abdul Jabbar or Lanier played the way Cowens does, how incredible could they be? And he said, it can't happen, it won't happen. Mm-hmm. He said, hustle is part of ability. Now, I've never forgotten that line. I've never heard it from anyone else, but I've never heard that line uh, ever, ever uh, again, and I've, I've requoted it a million times. And uh, This is one million and one. He was different. There was never anybody. Now, once again, there has never been anybody like him. Uh, people have been searching for them. The closest thing to him today, and this tells you how far away it is, is David Lee, mm-hmm. and and that's how far away we are. We're talking about, you know, no. I like David Lee, but David Lee's a nice player. But you take David Lee and make him three times better, you got Dave Counts, and uh, so the, he he was unusual. We know when he he was a rookie, uh, they didn't know if he, they had a rookie. They had a center named Garfield Smith. That's a whole other story. And he actually started the 1969-70-71 uh, season, Cowens' rookie year, uh, that, an opening night in New York and in the first couple of games of the season at center. Cowens actually started off his first pro game was uh, guarding the Busher. He was a power forward. Uh, and uh, eventually, and very quickly, he became the center. There was a raging debate in Boston amongst people who didn't know any better that because he was six feet eight and white, there's no way he could play center in the league. Mm-hmm. And all he did was go out every night and, 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 and disprove that notion. And you know, by this time, we're all used to Cowan. He's his fourth year. He's going to be the MVP. Uh, people understood that uh, he was a great rebounder. He ran the floor better than any center. He hustled 100% of the time. He was a terrific defender. He prided himself on defense. And um, he was just an amazingly uh, aggressive and, and useful and, and, and fascinating player. So uh, he, he was able to compete. He would outrun. And, uh, I mean, this happened particularly with Lanier. I can still see games when they're, run, they're, they're going off three quarters and they're fairly equal. And in the fourth quarter, Dave's still running and Lanier's tongue is dragging, licking the floor. And the Celtics pull away and win the game. Uh, he tried to outrun uh, Kareem, and, and very often he did. His win-loss record against the Bucks was very, very good overall and uh uh he was a real handful for these people and the guy that had the worst problem with him was wilt you know wilt's getting old he doesn't have lateral mobility mm-hmm. and that year you check it out but the four games the Celtics swept the lakers in 72 73 cowens averaged 31 points and 19 rebounds a game against wilt wilt could not simply because just had no clue how to handle dave cowens and uh, uh, Dave is in the Hall of Fame for, for a very, very legitimate reason. Yeah, that idea that hustle is part of ability um, sure is really kind of foreign to, to fans nowadays. You know, there's you know so much kind of glorification on kind of, you know, the run-jump aspects of a guy's ability. And, and, you know, whether it's the skill of a guy like Havlicek or the endurance of a guy like Havlicek or the heart and hustle of a guy like Cowens, those attributes kind of get to, get kind of lost in the shuffle, I think, nowadays. Well, the problem is once they were in 
the world of analytics now and everything's numbers and people are slaves to numbers and efficiency ratings and all this <laughs> other and complete irrelevant nonsense <laughs> that is infesting basketball. And, and, you know, it's nice for conversation, but when you want, let's just go play, yep. okay? And if you can't, there's no way you could compute, uh, find a number, a metric, an analytic that would uh, account for talents. And, and there, are, there are still players like that. You can't account for Noah. Now, you know, Noah is the most unanalyzable player in the league today. He's the most useful. I call him the M-U-B, the mug, the most useful big man. He is, I mean, he's the most useful big man, period. And, and uh, Cowens was, a, was an, an unusually, uh, uh, put the, you know, just an unusual conglomeration of, of skills and hearts and, 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 and also weaknesses. He had no right hand, and he was very stubborn about things. And that's part of, that was part of the package, too. Yeah, I think that's why KG resonated with so many Celtics fans is just, you know, while he was obviously, you know, uh, you know, a wonderful athlete in his prime and, you know, one of the, you know, more skilled big men of all time, it was that that element of, of heart and, and just some of the intangibles like communication that I think, you know, kind of was, was a throwback to, to, to that era. And if, if Havlicek is the forgotten superstar, then JoJo is kind of the forgotten all-star of Celtics history or NBA history. And a while back on the show, we had Mark, uh, author Mark Bedanza who pretended penned the biography of Jojo White, uh, Make It Count. What are some of your memories of Jojo, and particularly his performance in that 1973 season? Um, well, his crowning moment, of course, was unfortunately in defeat, mm-hmm. but uh, he, it wasn't his fault. That was game four in Madison Square Garden in the playoffs, the double overtime loss, and um, Jojo was the leading scorer at 35, and his son was born that night to top it off, mm-hmm. Brian. Um, Jojo was a controversial, he was the one controversial player in the mix. Uh, because um, he was a source of friction between myself and Heinsohn and sometimes between the players and Heinsohn. Uh, Joe was an excellent offensive player, no question. One of the most smooth, beautiful uh, players with an oddly, oddly uh, you know, screwball jump shot that released, but that went in and, 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 he, and he was a, an offensive player, no question. Um, but he wasn't dedicated to defense, and, and he, he didn't do the little things like block out and when they had switches and they were a big switching team. And, and there was a feeling among the players that uh, – the veterans that he was being coddled by Heinsohn, not being made accountable the way everybody else was. Heinsohn's counter argument was that we have to play offense first and we'll worry about the defense after we get the offense straightened out. And he's a great scorer and, I, and, and I'm not going to shackle him. And, and, and I think Tommy also thought that, that just assessing JoJo's personality it wouldn't have been very good to yell at him. And I think that's true. So there was a little friction there. And uh, when I, I reported these things that the players were feeling, and, and uh, Tommy got very upset, and that led to some problems with us, which is neither here nor there in this discussion, <laughs> but I'm just telling. So um, JoJo developed himself into an all-star, a perennial all-star player. And uh, he kept getting better and better, and he probably had his greatest year uh, after the 76-77, and um, they had that noble defeat to Philadelphia mm-hmm. in Game 7. But uh, I remember Havlicek saying to me, because I was off the beat at that time, uh, JoJo has become a great pro, and that's the highest compliment that he'd ever get from John Havlicek. And, uh, and, and, he, and I, uh, he, yeah, I remember him saying that to me, and that was a, a big watershed moment for me that Havlicek had uh, you know, anointed JoJo in that manner. Um, you're right, in the Celtic history, uh, you know, he's not going to be on the all-time five. He's going to be in the all-time 10 or 12, but he's not going to be in the all-time five. He's not one of the three best guards in Celtic history, but he's, he was a terrific player. And, uh, um, and, and you know, his numbers up. Uh, some people think he's a Hall of Famer. I think that he is a Hall of Very Good. I think that he is simply the next level. And the career, maybe if he had two or three more years, it would have at the high level. But he didn't. And uh, I think he, you know, he he's, should be finally remembered by, by uh, uh, will be finally remembered by Celtic fans and, 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 and should be a little bit better remembered by the other regular fans.
Now, you mentioned JoJo having his crowning moment in Game 4 of those playoffs, and the Celtics won 24 of their last 27 games going into that season's playoffs. But, you know, as a team, they hadn't previously achieved the type of playoff success, playoff success that the Russells team had. Was there a sense at the time that this team, particularly Collins and JoJo, but even Havlicek in this role now as a leader, had something to prove in those 73 playoffs? Well, it's not a matter of, well, for John, nothing to prove. Mm-hmm. John would like to get another championship post-Russell. That would, you know, and, and John you know, knew his time was somewhat running short, mm-hmm. you know. So, I mean, he's 33 when that season starts. His birth, when that season ends, he's 33. His birthday's April 8th. So, um, you know, and, and it turned out he had four more years, but, uh, let's see, five, five more years. But, uh, you know, he's getting older. And Nelson's a month younger than him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's getting older. they got to get, those guys want to get it done, and Dave hasn't done it yet. But there wasn't, that wasn't the dialogue. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a, 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 a sense of any frustration uh, at all um, going into that year or going into those playoffs. It was, you know, there was an ex- expectation of, of success. I think people expected that they could handle the Knicks this time and, uh, and get to the finals. But even if they did get to the finals, they were going to be going up against either the Bucks or the Lakers, and the Lakers were coming off the year, um, you know, the year in which um, – 69. They had won uh, 69 games in the championship, and and um, and the Bucks were, you know, Kareem was in his youthful prime. Uh, they were very, very good, and you knew that was going to be a struggle. So it was never a foregone conclusion that if you beat the Knicks, you're going to win the championship. And, you know, in addition to Havlicek, you know, we mentioned some of the other uh, players with, you know, ties remaining to those Russell teams, you know, were veterans Don Nelson and Satch Sanders. What role did those guys play, especially kind of in the playoffs with their experience and, and kind of ties to the, the previous championship era? Well, from this point, in this point in time, Satch is pretty much done. Mm-hmm. Satch is now uh, elder statesman, spot player. Uh, his, his, his tangible contributions were somewhat minimal. His spiritual contributions, I mean, his uh, intelligence, his uh, leadership, his, 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 his elder statesman status was, was wonderful. And, and, and he was a, a real mentor to the, uh, to the um, young players. I remember uh, after that game I told you about at Golden State when uh, um, we were in the parking lot, I saw, I saw him in the parking lot at the hotel with Cheney, and they were, and he was going over uh, pick and roll defensive uh, things that they had to think about when they're playing against um, uh, the Warriors, particularly with Jeff Mullins, and uh, uh, that was the kind of stuff that Satch was be able to provide. Nelson was a wholly different matter. Don Nelson was in the last phase of an amazing career, and which he still had a jump shot intact. And in fact, would lead the league in field goal percentage the following season at age 34. Uh, Nelly was a killer offensive player. I mean, and, and a guy that that. Um, you, uh, Never went into slumps. Um, he scored most ninety percent of his baskets were were foul line level jump shots. The other ten percent were follow ups, and uh, he was the smartest forward. He followed all these young players. He he had all these tricks, which included, of course, the illegal use of stick, <laughs> which became a big joke. And uh, you know he could he had the greatest up fake in the NBA in part because he knew how to where to hide to stick them, and that um, is spelled S T I C K hyphen U M by the way. Stick them a real product and. Um, now he was acknowledged to be the cleverest forward in the league, and and so uh, he still was a very viable offensive force and an extremely important part of this puzzle, uh, uh, no question about it. And plus the you know having all the pedigree of the of the previous rings he had won in the Russell era, um, and he was anxious to add another one to his collection. There's no question, and and so uh, they were they were well covered there. In the first round, the Celtics matched up with the Atlanta Hawks and won you know, four in six games to advance. And that Hawks team featured Pistol Pete Maravich. He scored 26 points a game in that series. What are your recollection of, of Maravich in that series? That Tommy Heinsohn would slobber over him after every game. <laughs> that Tommy Heinsohn would, 
Tommy Heinsohn would, would tell us in private that, oh, my God, I'd love to get my hands on that guy. What a fast break. Uh, he would be the greatest middleman in the history of fast breaks, um, you know, except maybe Takuzi, who But he, was, um, he absolutely thought that Maravich was, under, was not, you know, used right, that the, he was in a horrible circumstance. We all knew the fact that he was resented by the black players in Atlanta. The whole thing was a mess. Uh, you know, the whole reason he was there was because he was white. Everybody knew it. Everybody in the team knew it. Everybody in the stands knew it. Everybody in the league knew it. Um, the, he didn't really get along well with Richie Guerin, the coach. So I recall um, it was just a mess. He carried them in those six games. He carried them through six. I do, if I'm not mistaken, game six, the Celtics had some great explosion in the fourth quarter to put it away with a big run, like, you know, big run, 15 straight or 21 to two or some damn thing. I'm pretty sure. You can look that up. I'm pretty sure. So that carried them, that, that carried them out of town on a real happy note. And what was the mood like in Boston going into the conference final against the Knicks? Was there a confidence that the Celtics were going to be able to avenge the previous season's result? And, sure there uh, was. I mean, they just got to win in 68 yeah. and, and, uh, and, and, you know, proving that they could play with the Knicks. And they had to, they had the, uh, the, the anti-Debusher repellent and, and, so, uh, and Silas. So, yeah, there's no question that they felt well-armed, well-equipped. The fans were ready and expectant. And, and, and we all, we're looking forward to I'll tell you the pageantry of it. I cannot tell you. I'm telling you of all the rivalries with Boston, Philly, um, and uh, you know, L.A., this, this one had a special tinge. Uh, it, was, it was great. And this was the last great year, era of it this year, but it was, uh, it was great stuff. And uh, we're, all, we're all looking forward to it. Did it, can it reach a crescendo after that 26-point blowout in, in the Garden in Game 1? No, it all came, you know, it all came apart when Havich, you know, when yeah. Havich got hurt, game three. Got caught in that sandwich between the Busher and Bradley, hurt his shoulder. And we didn't, and he could not play game four, which was Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. And they get up by, and they play a magnificent game. And they get up by 16 and they're entering the fourth. And, and you know, depending on uh, whose version you want to buy, the, the Knicks had a heroic comeback and won in double overtime. Or the Celtics were completely F, the blank, 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 <laughs> D, by uh, Jack Madden and Jake O'Donnell, uh, who completely took the game over. At one point, the Knicks, the Celtics had seven consecutive turnovers, and at least a few of them were caused by rather aggressive Nick play that was not uh, chastised by the, uh, the toot of a whistle. And my favorite circumstance, uh, uh, the site is a steal that uh, was made by Frazier, and he's driving to the basket, and then you can, there's a picture in which Don Nelson is running somewhat uh, a little bit next to him, but has his arms down. So he's not going to create any impression of trying to block the shot and therefore give him a three-point play. But in the background, Jack Madden has his right hand fist already raised. He's ready to signal the three-point play no matter what happens. And, that, and I don't think they were cheaters. I wrote this. I said they were what I called, sub, they felt subject to what I called subconscious crowd orchestration <laughs> and uh, a, a malady that any official can have in a, in, in a home, in a, in a certain arena, any arena. And the Nick Massacre Garden was the most intimidating arena in the league in those days. And um, they, they did lose the game. They, 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 they were screwed badly. And um, um, now it's, uh, they're down three to one instead of uh, being two to two coming back home. They win game five. Havlicek plays with one arm, gets 18 points. Amazing. The Knicks treat him with great deference. They didn't go near him. They let him do what he wanted, and he scored 18 points. But they still needed a couple of late free throws on a, I think it was a putback uh, foul, a loose ball foul, sent Silas to the line. He was not a great free throw shooter, but he made them, and they won that game. And then game six, um, they played a wonderful game in Madison Square Garden. Uh, Havlicek again played at nine points. He was less effective. Uh, Silas came big, and Kaberski came up big. And then... Um, uh, game seven, we naturally thought was a breeze. I mean, there's no way with this mm-hmm. momentum, uh, how, uh, you know, that the, the, the Celtics aren't going to win. And it was one of the flattest performances imaginable. First of all, Havlicek comes off the bench, and they immediately attack him. They're making him 
throw passes he can't make because of the bad arm. They're, they're attacking him the way they should have. They, they No more deference, no more Mr. Nice Guy, no more uh, – no. And he, he threw, turned the ball over. And um, uh, the X Factor was one of the great games of his in Nick career, Dean Meminger. Dean Meminger yep. had like 13 points, and he, I believe he shut out JoJo in the second half. And, and they lost, 94-78. It was the first time they had lost a game seven at home. And it was, it was flat. I mean, and those, that one-third of the crowd that were Nick fans were, were enjoying that one. So it was a very, very, very disappointing ending of the season. But to this day, 40 years later, we can all trace it. You know, John doesn't get hurt. Give me a break. Mm-hmm. They're winning. And, um, and what they would have done to the Lakers was, you know, they, they would have, I, mean, I told you, 31-19 and 19 for Cowens. That would not have changed. So the Knicks go on and they beat the Lakers and, and win their uh, last championship. And um, um, the Celtics would have done the same thing, but uh, they didn't get the chance. And, and with the injury to Havlicek at the time, was it, you know, was it clear that he was going to be significantly impacted through the, the rest of the series? Or was it kind of a, well, you know, wait and see how this goes. And then as, well, as, from, as, as I recall from the initial analysis of it, we were surprised he was going to play at all. Oh, okay. So when he showed up to play in game five, it was a, sh- it was a shock. And when he realized, when he realized he was basically playing with one arm and it was the wrong arm, uh, you know, well, it's part of Havacek's legend. And the fact that he had 18 points in that game is incredible. Um, but uh, he, he had diminished capacity as the next game. next game was halved, and then he was a, he was a liability in Game 7. Yeah, and I vividly remember the 82 playoffs and the Celtics coming back from, you know, similarly being down three games to one and forcing a Game 7 in the Garden against Philadelphia. And again, that, you know, kind of feeling of confidence going, to the, going into the game only to have that, you know, same kind of, you know, flat performance. What do you attribute the flat performance to? Is it simply a case of, you know, just the, the realization of Havlicek's diminished capacity and the impact that that had. Um, you know, kind of. How, how do you explain it? I can't really. The Knicks were just better that day, mm-hmm. and they did take advantage of him. And they, and I said, and they had they had their X factor. They had Meminger. Meminger played a game that was uh, out of character uh, to be offensively minded. I mean, he was a defensive player. Um, <clears throat> so that's just the way it was. I mean, I was. I can't. I'm sure that they were when when the team realized that John did not have anything that could have had anything something to do with it. I uh, can't just they got beat, and I just look at it that way. That way, they were the Knicks that day were you know just better, and the Knicks probably imagine the Knicks figure we can't blow this after being up three to one, and we're getting beaten by one on man like you know uh, like uh, the the fugitive. So uh, come on, uh, no, they, I think the Knicks uh, roused themselves uh, as they should have uh, when they realized uh, we got we, we, this is going far enough, you know, kind of thing. We got to we got to stop this. I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. And after the such a historic regular season, what was the reaction to the loss? Was it a case of you know just the stars not aligning for us that year, and in a sense that the team would rebound the following season? Well, it came down to how, you know, mm-hmm. everybody knew the reason. It was, easy, it was a very easy rationalization. There was no mystery involved. Mm-hmm. And so uh, John doesn't get hurt, we win. That's the way. You know, we've had our breaks. In the, you know, a lot of people were able to say, hey, you know, we've had our breaks in the past, our own self. You know, we beat Philadelphia in 68. Cunningham had broken his arm, didn't play. Uh, there were, you know, a lot, there's all kinds of times when things happen and, uh, 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 for the other guys, and this time it happened to them. And rational people look at it that way. Rational people, you know, can't, you can never deal with them. <laughs> And one last question before we let you go. Uh, a recurrent theme when talking about this team is you know, how they are overlooked as individuals, as a team, and even Heinsohn as the coach. How is it that one of the great teams in the history of such a great franchise doesn't always get the recognition it deserves? Is it simply that they didn't hang a banner? Is it they're kind of overshadowed by the Russell and Bird era teams? It's the banner. Mm-hmm. They didn't win. And, and um, um, you know, when... when, when <laughs> I forget where I put them. I either put them, I to look it up. I'm sure you already have. I, I, I put them second or third on the all-time great Celtic teams uh, after the uh, 2008 championship. The, my follow-up was a, a, a column ranking the top 10 Celtic teams. 
and I think I had them second or third. And who did you have number one? The and eighty-six. Uh, uh, you know, because I saw that team. They were the best running team in Celtic history. No team has ever run better than them. And uh, uh, that period. Okay, so start with that. That their fast break was the greatest example of a fast break that the Celtics have ever had. Better, you know, better than the because they were better athletes than the guys in the fifties. That's all. I mean, they were just better. And um, and they could. Have, I mean, it's sheer explosiveness and sheer artistry. Um, the ball movement, the the orchestration, the the use of the trailer with Nelson and Cowan, so every aspect of it, uh, they were the best running team, and they were relentless in their their uh, their whole game plan. You know, Tommy was happy if they ever, never ran a play; he would be thrilled if they never had to run a single play. If they could just get up and down the court the whole game, and they tried and many times. They probably came eighty percent games when they probably ran, you know, very few plays. So um, <clears throat> that's that. That team deserves to be remembered. It was a very special year. They were so much fun to watch. Um, I, I, I mentioned his name in passing, but I want to cite you know, the example of uh, they had an X-Factor in that team, too. It was Hambone Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hambone Williams was an amazing passer and, a, and, a, and an energetic player. Um, and have him coming off the bench and, 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 and get them, make the game even faster, which, uh, which was what he did, was incredible. Everybody wanted to get in the game when he was in there because they knew he was going to get you the ball. Plus, he was a tough, tough guy. And they respected him because unlike JoJo, when he switched off, he was boxing out your ass. He was not letting you get on that ball. And uh, they loved him for that, too. Hambone was a real character. You know, a 28-year-old rookie, came in the league in San Diego back in 68 and, um, and had worked in private, you know, worked as construct. I don't know, in general dynamics, I think he worked somewhere. He was a playground legend in San Diego, and, and uh, he actually, uh, you know, you don't get those stories too often. But um, uh, he, he gave them two or three really good years, and that year he was, you know, he was tremendous. Now, listeners, you can follow Bob on Twitter, at Globe Bob Ryan. Thanks for joining us today, Bob. It really was a pleasure and a thrill for me. All right, it's always fun to talk about that team. My pleasure. Interesting to note that Bob had that 1973 team second on his list of the great Celtics teams in history. How many listeners would rank them that high or even in the top five? I started following the Celtics during the 1976 NBA Finals against the Suns. I was in my tween years then and had that one taste of success before that dark pre-Larry Bird, John Y. Brown, Sidney Wicks, Curtis Rowe era hit in the late 70s. The team returned to glory during my teen years, and I never experienced that 1973 team or any of the Russell teams firsthand. And I recognize that this might be a bit biased, uh, somewhat by nostalgia, but I have the 1986 team first on the list of those great Celtics teams. It isn't just the statistical results and the relative degree of ease with which they won the title. It was the way they were able to absolutely toy with their opponents, even in the finals. There were times during that season where they were playing basketball, particularly offensively, at a level I don't think it's ever been played before or since. The passing and ability to hurt an opponent in so many different ways offensively was simply astonishing. You had Bird at really kind of the height of his career during that that 86 season when he won the third of his his three uh, NBA MVPs. You had McHale, who that season kind of become one of the more unstoppable offensive forces in NBA history. You had Parrish, who was kind of the the, the unnoticed member of that that big three, but was was really at the height of his career, both offensively and defensively. You had Danny Ainge really hitting his stride and, and coming into his own as, you know, kind of a all-star level player in the NBA. Of course, you had Dennis Johnson. And off the bench, you had Bill Walton for that just kind of one brief fleeting year, kind of returned to that 
form of early of his career. You know, he could only do it in short stretches, but just the passing with him and Bird on the court at the same time was just unbelievable to behold. And then, you know, further down the bench, you had Jerry Seasting, who could be a starter on many other teams, and Scott Wedman, who could come off the bench and drop you 20 points in any given game. It was just just wonderful basketball to watch. And, you know, after that, it gets kind of tricky for me in, in terms of rating teams. You know, the Russell era teams between 62 and 65 were phenomenal, if not somewhat indistinguishable. You know, maybe the sustained excellence of those teams keeps any one season from really standing out. The next best season in the Bird era was probably the 1987 squad that eventually succumbed to injuries and the Lakers in the NBA Finals. And as good as that team was... Considering that they failed to win the title, it's hard to put them ahead of that 68-win 1973 team. That leaves the 2008 championship squad. Certainly that team has recency in its favor, but I think they have even become a bit underrated in the past couple of years. It was, for me, probably the best defensive team in franchise history. And despite some early bumps in the playoffs, they had a consistently dominating season. Kind of analogous to how the 86 team wore teams down just with their offensive prowess. That 2008 team anchored by KG really just ground teams to a halt defensively and I think just kind of broke their will in kind of the same way that that 86 team was capable of. All told, I'd say, you know, if I had to rank the teams, I'd go with that 86 team first, then the 2008 team second, and the 1973 team third overall. But it's hard for me to say that without feeling like I might be biasing my ratings based on what I, I was able to experience firsthand. Head over to Facebook and the Celtics Beat on CLNS radio page and let me know what you think. Who do you have rated as the, the top three or five teams in franchise history? One thing that struck me in looking back at the different teams and eras in Celtics history is the cyclical nature of the franchise's success, failure, and rebirth. In the late 50s, Red built a powerhouse with Russell as a central figure. And then once he inevitably moved on, the franchise dipped pretty significantly, missing the playoffs for two straight seasons. And, you know, granted, they won 44 games in, in one of those seasons back when only eight teams total made the playoffs in each conference, or sorry, in, in, in the league entirely. Uh, but still, the franchise went through a transition and was rebuilt and reborn behind Havlicek, Cowens, and JoJo. They went through another peak period lasting six years where they won those two titles in 74 and 76 and made the conference finals another three times. After that, things really deteriorated in 77 and 78 and 78, 79. Those years were undoubtedly undoubtedly the low point in franchise history. The team won fewer games during the ML Carr tank years, but things were never as dark as they were in those late 70s seasons. At one point, Red even considered going to work for the Knicks to get John Y. Brown out of his life. Then out of nowhere, the franchise was reborn yet again with the arrival of Bird and Bill Fitch. Celtics fans were treated to an eight, eight or nine-year run of contention with the exception of a downer 1982-83 season that brought Fitch's tenure as a coach to a close. Then came, of course, the deaths of Len Bias and Reggie Lewis, the absentee ownership of Thanks Dad Gaston, the mismanagement of Rick Pitino, and a 22-year drought where it seemed like the last of the Celtics winning tradition had faded into the history books. Then Wick Grosbeck, Danny Ainge, and Doc Rivers came in, cleaned house, and built a nice six-year run launched by that great 2008 team. 
So I guess Celtics fan, the lesson in all this is even though the team is in a down period right now, uh, have faith. You know, the Celtics legacy and the Celtics way lives on and before long they'll be back in contention. Another thing that stood out in the interview with Bob was the discussion about Paul Silas and what he brought to that 1973 team. We're all familiar with the genius of Red Auerbach and the various shrewd moves he's made to put the franchise over the top or, or to keep them there over the years. Trading for Russell, drafting Cowens, drafting Bird after his junior year when nobody else had thought to do that, getting Parrish and McHale for Joe Barry Carroll, drafting Danny Ainge when he was playing baseball, trading for DJ. But the Silas move hardly ever gets mentioned, but it was a great example of Red's ability to recognize how his pieces fit and what might be missing and then go out and fill the hole with the exact right piece. The Celtics had been beaten pretty handily by the Knicks in the conference finals the previous year because they couldn't handle the Knicks' front line, particularly Dave DeBuscher. So Red went out and found the perfect countermeasure. And if it weren't for that injury to Havlicek, it would have probably have resulted in a championship. As always, Red was playing check chess while everyone else was playing checkers. I also really enjoyed the genuine pleasure that Bob seemed to be taking when he was talking about Hambone Williams. While I talk a lot about how Cowens and JoJo and even Havlicek in some ways get a bit lost in the shuffle when talking about Celtics history, that 73 team had a few other guys whose names hardly ever, if ever, get mentioned, but that you know were compelling and unique players in their own right. We talked a bit about Silas, and I think he is criminally overlooked in Celtics lore. And Bob, of course, talked about Hambone Williams, who I'm sure most fans may not even be familiar with. Another name that really stands out for me looking at that team is Don Chaney. Current Celtics fans of, of Avery Bradley should go search for some old YouTube clips of Chaney. He was a tremendous defender in the backcourt, kind of combining physical play with quickness. He was never the offensive player that Dennis Johnson was, but he might have been as good of a defender. Someone who wasn't a big part of that 1973 team, but would later be a big part of Celtics history, was rookie guard Paul Westfall. The Celtics traded Westfall after the 1975 season to the Phoenix Suns, and those two teams would meet, of course, a year later in the NBA Finals, and Westfall played a huge role in that triple overtime game during those finals. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed our trip down memory lane with Bob Ryan today, and we've got another treat for you next week, so stay tuned. I do want to take a moment to let everyone know that the CLNS Radio family suffered a loss this past week when blogger and podcaster Alex Mazzolini passed away unexpectedly. CLNS personalities and fans alike were stunned and saddened to hear of Alex's sudden passing. Alex was passionate about his craft and about sports in general, as well as the UNC Tar Heels specifically. I will personally miss the spirited but respectful debates he and I would have on the air and over social media. I'd like to take a moment of silence in honor of Alex. God bless you, Alex. You'll be greatly missed. Once again, I'd like to remind folks of the Celtics Beat ticket giveaway. Visit our page on iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe to Celtics Beat and you'll be entered into a raffle to win two tickets to any Celtics home game of your choosing this upcoming season. While you're there, please rate and review Celtics Beat and help us grow our success. Thanks for joining us today to take a look back at Celtics history. Training camp is just around the corner and we'll be here with the best Celtics talk on the web. Should be an interesting season and we'll have it all right here on Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio. 
That's going to do it for this week's special edition of Celtics Beat. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Chuck Dietz, Astra Vex, and Steph Legratteau. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat. And you can like Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. I'd like to thank our guest, Bob Ryan, for our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, executive producer, Larry H. Russell. I'm Rich Conti. See you next Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, for another edition of Celtics Beat, exclusively on CLNS Radio.